The scripture reading for our sermon this morning comes from Luke 19, 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Right. So today uh, is the start of Holy Week, right? Uh, some of you may be familiar with that. Um, growing up, um, I never knew that this was Holy Week. Uh, why is it Holy Week? Well, this is the last week of Jesus' life before he died and was resurrected, right? Uh, and that's why we call it Palm Sunday today and then Good Friday, Easter Sunday. That's why we call it Holy Week. Now, um, why is it called Palm Sunday? Do you think about that? Is it because we're going to, you know, just drink some coconuts after service? Is that why we're, it's called Palm Sunday? No. You see, uh, back then, palm trees, uh, they represented victory. They represented triumph. Um, uh, they represented a sense of overcoming. Uh, in ancient Mediterranean world, right, uh, palm trees would symbolize life. Because where the palm trees were, there was water. So you're in the middle of the desert, you're journeying, and you see a large, tall palm tree, and it gives you hope. You know that there's water. You can build a city. You and your family is going to survive. You can rest. And that's why we call it Palm Sunday. Because when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, right, John chapter 12, verse 13, it reads that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So palm trees symbolized victory. It symbolized triumph. It symbolized hope. You see, when Roman generals would come uh, uh, home from war against their enemies, Roman citizens would do what? They would bring palm branches and they would throw palm branches on the ground because it symbolized victory, that, th that their, their country had won a war. So that's why it's called Palm Sunday. 
But before we dive into this entire text, I just want to give the outline for today's sermon. All right. First, we're going to take a look in this passage, our desire for a king. Our desire for a king. Then second, the purpose of this king. And then third, we're going to take a look at the response from all the people. So first, the desire for a king. You know, uh, this, this phrase, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's in the book of Matthew. That's in the book of Mark. That's in the book of John. That's in the book of Luke. And this is a direct quotation from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was written by a psalmist after the Davidic kingdom and they're scattered, right? The kingdom has been divided. They're taken over by Assyria and Babylon. They're split up and they're writing this psalm because they're expecting a great warrior king like David again to deliver them from their enemies and to give them sovereignty again. You see, this, this expectation of a future king of Israel it was a huge theme in Israel's thinking. It was a huge emphasis in their literature, in their Old Testament. That someday, someone like King David, perhaps even a descendant from David, this is why lineages were so important, would come and deliver them from their enemies. Because if you read the Old Testament, when you read 2 Samuel, when you read 1 Kings when David was king, everything was great. That's when they built the great temple. They were not only a sovereign nation, they were the strongest nation in the land. And so they weren't paying tributes to other nations. Nations were paying tributes to them. And so what's happening in our scene is this. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. People are carrying palm trees and, and branches, not palm trees, just the branches. And the commotion is due to the fact that the people of Israel believe Jesus is the long expected king who's going to deliver them from the Romans. That's the expectation we have here. It's a great scene. This isn't anything new though. This is us too. You see, every four years, there is this thing called an election. I don't know if you heard of it. And every four years, we have this expectation, this hope that someone is going to put things right every four years and C.S. Lewis in his book Present Concerns he, he writes this this he writes about this expectation for kings uh, presidents prime ministers leaders and this is what he says the actual record of kings is abysmal full of tyranny yet when we are disappointed and discouraged to honor a king we will honor millionaires athletes, or film stars instead. For our souls, like physical nature, is starving. What do our souls starve for? In a broken world, our souls starve for any kind of hope for triumph. But deny it food, and it will gobble poison. What is C.S. Lewis talking about here? What he's saying is, you know, we've gotten rid of kings. We've gotten rid of queens. We've gotten rid of moral victors. You know, we're, we're sort of cynical about any sort of moral leadership that's going to deliver us. But he says, but by and large, yet we are still looking for heroes. We are still searching for champions. There's a deep hunger inside all of us, a deep hope, right, 
for someone to, to, to make things right, to make things better, to take the pain and the suffering. Maybe it's a better manager, okay? Maybe it's a better mayor. Maybe it's a better city council. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a better principal at your school. There is this expectation, this deep hope. We'd like them to be moral. We want them to be good. But if they're not available, you know what? We'll just, we'll take what's available. CS says, we'll, we'll settle for, you know, immoral leaders. Maybe they're just, they just make a lot of money. They're not integral, but they make a lot of money. So we'll just, we'll just follow that. And so CS says, we'll, we'll gobble up poison to our own peril. Just another fact to help us understand this concept of, of, of expectation for uh, champions and heroes. Um, do you know what the highest selling book category is? It's not nonfiction. It's fiction. It's fantasy, right? Lewis understood this. He himself was a fictional writer, right, with the chronicles of Narnia and this great Aslan that comes and, and makes everything right. He, Lewis is saying, you know, why is there hunger for fantasy? Why is this indelible need to find uh, goodness and righteousness and heroes and champions outside of our world, outside of this world. And he continues in his book um, because towards uh, his career, Lewis ended up becoming a Christian um, through his friend J.R.R. R. Tolkien. And, and Lewis says, you know, as he's reading the Bible, he says, you know, this, this desire for heroes and redemption, he says, it's a memory trace. Man, he gets, he gets pretty like sci-fi-ish here. I love it. <laughs> he says, it's a memory trace in the collective unconscious of the human race. What does he mean by that? He says, it's a memory trace of a perfect king, a memory trace of an ultimate king, of a king of glorious splendor, undimmed before the breaking world, whose wisdom and nobility and love and compassion and greatness and beauty is like the sun shining in its full strength. That's what he says it is. It's a memory trace. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, I like to use a lot of basketball analogies. Forgive me. But, you know, whenever we see someone great, in, you know, at basketball, who do we always compare this person to? Michael Jordan, right? It's a memory trace of Jordan. You know, is he as good? Oh, he's not. Right? And that's, that's what we're searching for. We, 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 deep in, in the human race, in, in the unconscious, the collective unconscious, uh, there is a trace in our minds of a king, someone who was good. You see, in the very beginning, in, in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of history, there was a king. There was a paradise. There was a golden age. The Garden of Eden, everything was great. And then what happens as we uh, read the scriptures, our very first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They go autonomous and everything falls apart. There's darkness, there's disintegration. And then Genesis 15 tells us, if we read it, God says one last thing, one last thing before he re returns in Jesus. And this is the last thing the human race heard from God face to face before Jesus returned. And God said, I have one last thing to say before we part. It's a word of hope. He says, things look terrible. Things are bad. There's sin now in the family, now in the world. There's sin now in us. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be death. But God says, one day, 
One day someone will come and they will crush the head of the dragon. There's going to be a battle to death. And he's going to win. But it's going to be at the cost of his own life. You see, that's the trace. This voice that, that says one day things are going to be right. One day it's not going to be like this. And what, 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 what C.S. Lewis says is that underneath our hope for a better job, underneath our hope for a home, underneath our hope for someone who loves us unconditionally, underneath all of that is the ultimate hope. A perfect home in heaven. A God who loves us unconditionally. Work in heaven that will be without toil, without sweat, without thorns and thistles. Underneath our desire for heroes is the ultimate champion. Underneath our desire for victory over evil is the ultimate victor, Jesus Christ. And you know, that, that's why uh, when we get victory of something we've been working for here on earth, you know, something we've been expecting, something we think is the promised land, what happens? What happens? We're never satisfied. There's always a letdown, right? There's always that unforeseen brokenness. Oh, I didn't know that, you know, this, this company was going to be like this. I didn't know marriage was going to be this so hard. Man, I didn't know having kids was going to be this exhausting. And so there's this unfulfillment still, this angst, because it's not fulfilling the original memory trace, this ultimate expectation. And so our heart continues to long for something, something different, maybe something better. The world calls it, the grass always looks greener on the other side. The book of Ecclesiastes calls it what? Chasing after the wind. I love that illustration. Just read a book of Ecclesiastes. I, that's just like therapeutic counseling for my soul, you know? It just, it just empathizes with all the pain and the frustration and the angst of the brokenness of this world. Chasing after the wind. But then here today on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes to us and he says, you know what, I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the one you're waiting for, right? That perfect pastor, he's like, it's me, <laughs> right? This is me. I'm the one you're chasing after. I'm the house built on the rock, not sand, right? Underneath your deep desire for security, Jesus says, I'm the real security. Underneath your deep desire for comfort, Jesus says, I'm the real comfort. Underneath the deep desire for purpose and meaning, Jesus says, I'm that real purpose and meaning. So friends, this is what's in store for you today. This is what's in store for you as a Christian with Jesus as your king. It's the ultimate fulfillment, the real fulfillment, nothing less. And so you got to live with this kind of hope. You know what, man, as I was preparing this text and I was sort of meditating on what it means, what does, what does this text mean, the palm trees, the king, and I realized, man, I don't live with this kind of hope, you know? Sometimes I live for the weekend, you know what I'm saying? Uh, sometimes I live for the meal, the, the, that good meal, whatever it is. Sometimes I live... Uh, for so many other things. And I don't live with this kind of faith, with this kind of joy. And then God sort of pierced through to my sort of cloudy week and he said, you know what, Rich, it's not in all these other things. It's, it, it's, in, it's in me. It's the only thing that's going to keep you till the end. It's the only thing that's not going to let you down. It's the only thing that's going to revive you 
and energize you, right? And it's the same thing that's going to keep you going in the right direction over and over again. So that's the first thing we see here. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true champion. Jesus is the true security of all securities. He's the true rest of all rest. He's the true joy of all joys. That's the first thing we see. Now let's go to the second point here, the purpose of this king. In verse 30, Jesus tells the disciples to go into the village first. And he says, go, go get me a colt, right? In the other gospels, um, it tells us that it's a colt of a donkey, right? Uh, a colt is just a young male uh, horse, so it's a young donkey. Now, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there was a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. And this is what the prophet wrote in Zechariah 9.9. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right, that's the prophecy. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. See that word, humble? I want you to keep that word in mind. So here's what's happening. In our text, the situation is this. Historically, it is the Jewish Passover. Okay? So modern day Holy Week, this week, right, is the Jewish Passover. Right? Um, Jewish people who, Orthodox Jews, or who believe in, this, in, in, the, in the Old Testament are celebrating right now the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover was instituted many, many years before, during the days of Moses, when God's people were in slavery in Egypt, waiting for God to deliver them from oppression and suffering and death. But how did God deliver his people? Through a very strange act called the Passover. The Passover is where uh, Israel would get a sacrificial lamb and it had to be without spot, uh, sorry, uh, spot or blemish to symbolize a perfect sacrifice. And they would confess their sins that they had sinned against God onto the lamb. And the animal would bear their sin and guilt as a substitution. Then the animal was killed and died in their place for their sins. This symbolized that the punishment of sin is death which is why we will all one day face death. Uh, we cannot live forever. It wouldn't be just. Um, the sin of one person to live forever would be catastrophic. And so through faith in this sacrificial lamb, God would then pass over the sins of that home. And even if you were uh, an Egyptian, even if you were Pharaoh himself, if you had done that act of faith, God would pass over your sin. So you had to have faith, even in the Old Testament, to be saved. And they did this every year during the week of Passover as a reminder that God did not just deliver them from Pharaoh's sin and impending death, but also from their own sin and it's impending death. You see, they did this because God was delivering them from sin in total. That's what the sacrificial land, that's what Passover represented. Okay, so full circle, how is this connected to Jesus on a donkey? Well, back then, champions and victors of war, they would ride into the downtown of their home city 
on a stallion, on a war horse with a full parade. But how is Jesus being transported here? On a donkey. Have you guys seen a donkey? They're, they're about like this big. Now imagine a grown, okay, a kid on a donkey is cute. Imagine a grown man on a donkey. It seems ridiculous. It's not, a donkey is too humble for a grown man, right? It's, it's, not, it's not sufficient, right? It's a, it's a cosmic illustration of the cross. Donkey is an animal of service. It's an animal of humility. And so the disciples are looking at this and they're saying, what are, your, what are you doing? You're not going to win people over like this. You know, you need to stop being so ridiculous now. We get it. But now is the time to gather, gather our strength. You got to be on a war horse, man. What's the matter with you? Think about this. Let's say today, you know, um, a monarch or president or prime minister, they're being installed. And, you know, they usually show up in a limo, right, um, with a motorcade and it's massive, right? Now imagine, imagine Jesus. What does he do? He says, I don't need that. He says, get me a Honda Civic. Right, give me a Honda Civic, electric blue, okay? <laughs> On the one hand, you're like, that's not very imposing. Like, that's not, that's not even an option. That's not a show of power. It's not bulletproof. On the other hand, you're like, this guy drives the same car I drive? That's pretty humble. I remember when, when Jen uh, used to go into work, sometimes the CEO would, would eat in the cafeteria with them, and she thought that was so cool, Right? This guy eats the food that we eat. Humble. Jesus rides into town on a Honda Civic. The king of kings, the great I am, his own vehicle for transportation for this great moment, for this great processional, Jesus says, give me a donkey. So here's what he's saying through this. Jesus is saying, look, if I was coming to deliver you from the Romans, I would be coming on a war horse. I come in strength. But I'm not coming to deliver you from that. I'm coming with a deliverance you don't know anything about. He says, I'm coming to deliver you from sin and death itself. I'm coming to deliver the world, the entire world from sin and death. I want all the nations to worship me. Not just one nation. And so Jesus is saying, yes, I am power personified, but I'm coming with a power you don't know anything about. And that is the power to lay down power. I'm coming in humility, weakness, service, sacrifice, death. In other words, you see, during this Jewish Passover, Jesus is ultimately saying what? He is saying, I am the Lamb of God. And I'm coming here in humility to take away the sins of the world. And he dies in our place so that our guilt, our eternal condemnation, our eternal death, God would literally pass over all of that. And that's what makes Jesus the king of kings. Not his power, but his grace. Right? What good would it be if he had all the power in the world and, and he didn't use it to help anyone? But that's what we find here, friends, in our text. The purpose of our king is to graciously give everything of himself. He doesn't hold anything back. Nothing back. Let's take a look at the last thing we see here, the response of the people. Uh, 
Luke 19, verse 37 to 39, tells us this response here. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So there are three things we see here in the response of the people. In verses 37 and 39, we see three things. We see truth from the disciples. We see emotions and we see sacrifice. All right? Truth, emotion, sacrifice. So let's go first to truth. Okay? The scene is, man, it's just so packed. You see, when the disciples are declaring Jesus as Lord, not just King, but Lord, what do the Pharisees say? They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are they saying that? Because uh, disbelieving Jews who, who would not have believed in Jesus, they would have heard this as blasphemy because only God is Lord. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know. That's me. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Now, the Romans would have heard this as treasonous because they would have said only Caesar is Lord. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm Lord, right? So Jesus is establishing himself in authority over everyone and everything that has ever lived upon the earth or will ever live upon the earth. Massive statement. And his, and his disciples, they're not ashamed. They're not lukewarm. They're not half-hearted. You know, um, I remember, um, you know, whenever... Uh, husbands propose to their wives, there's this elaborate, right, just decked out proposal. And, right, uh, the fiance loves it. Why? Because he's not ashamed. <laughs> uh, he's not lukewarm. You know, he's, he's public about it. And so Jesus is the disciples' king. He's their Lord, which means to say that he's their God. There's no asterisk. Do you know what an asterisk is, right? It's a little star that companies put on a contract or marketing advertisement that lays out all the conditions and stipulations that will prevent them from fulfilling their end of the deal. <laughs> That's what an asterisk is, right? Come, if you, buy, if you pay this, we'll give you this. And then the asterisk tells you, actually, we're not going to give you this unless you do this, right? But, but in our passage, we see here that Jesus is not their king with an asterisk. There's no fine print. He's not the interim God until something else captures their attention. It's not yes, Jesus, but eh. it's not okay, Jesus. But no, it's, it's just yes. I understand. Roger that. You're my king and Lord. It's a tremendous challenge for us, I think. Friends, I want to ask you, do you follow Jesus as your king? As your king? Do you follow him as your God? No asterisk. No more asterisks. Because we love asterisks, right? Uh, we love following Jesus when it's convenient. Uh, we love following Jesus when we feel like it. Uh, when we're desperate, when we think we need something from him. Those are asterisks. Let me read a passage um, that talks about worshiping Jesus with no asterisks. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 to 18 
the prophet writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. No asterisks. Second, let's take a look at how else these people respond. Uh, verse uh, 37 and 39, it says that they rejoiced. They were happy, you know? It was like, oh, I gotta go up there. And you know, it was like, no, they were emotionally happy, you know? Um, and how did they rejoice? It says that they rejoiced with a loud voice. They were loud, you know? So they were following Jesus gladly and loudly. Um, I think there's something we need to learn here as a, as a people. We're growing in it, but there's still more to learn. Because, you know, all of us, whether you like it or not, whether you're in denial or not, you are a worshiper. Maybe it's when you go to a concert. Maybe it's when you go to a stadium. Okay? That's when we jump out of our seats. We get excited. We're clapping. Right? If it's a band, whatever, we buy that t-shirt with the person's face on it. You know? If it's a sports, if a sporting event, we get the jersey with the name on it. Right? I've got a shrine. It's a shrine. Okay? It's not okay. I've got a shrine upstairs with all this Golden State Warrior stuff. You know? Every time I pass by it, I'm like, please, Lord, we need a victory. Right? That's loud and joyful worship. So you're a worshiper, you know, whether you, whether you know it or not. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, um, I went to a Bible teaching, but very emotionally handicapped church, okay? <laughs> it was very emotionless. Um, and then there was this thing called a joint worship night with, I think, uh, a charismatic church. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't, I didn't you know, I just went. My friend invited me. I go. Um, and the churches come together. Next thing you know, it's just, there's not even introduction. All of a sudden, it's just, man, the, the music is just blaring, and, and they're, they're singing, they're singing loud. They're singing like they mean it, right? I see hands go in the air, and I'm like, oh, shoot, someone's got a gun, <laughs> right? Like, call 911, where's the nearest exit? And, and you know, they're, 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 they're worshiping as if Jesus did actually do these amazing things, you know? <laughs> And I first thought, I first thought, man, this is, this is awkward. This is so weird. And then I started to think, well, I guess, I guess if I was at a concert, if, if I was at a sporting event, uh, I would act like this. Um, and I guess if Jesus is alive and he's done all the things that I claim to believe in, I probably should be happier, Right? So friends, how about you? What, what do you get excited about, right? What do you get loud over? What gets you pumped up? What gives you joy? What, 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 do you, what do you can't stop thinking about and daydreaming about and talking about and planning for? Because that, that, is, that is what Jesus is trying to get after. He's trying to get at those emotions. Lastly, let's take a look at sacrifice. When the disciples go and retrieve uh, for Jesus the donkey, what the owner, I love it. I love like, I just love how just um, literal the Bible is sometimes. The, the owner says, what are you doing? <laughs> it's my donkey, bro, right? Um, and the disciples say, hey, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> okay? And what does the owner do? What do does he say, right now? <laughs> like, I'm going to use the donkey. No, no, no. I mean, does he, say, does he say, do you know how much I could get for this donkey? Tell the Lord to get someone else's donkey, you know? No, the owner doesn't do anything. He lets the disciples have it. 
It's a valued possession. You know, Jesus used it as a vehicle of transformation. So at the very least, it was a modern equivalent of a very affordable car. And friends, in principle, you know, you and I need to live like this. Lord Jesus, what do you need? My car? My place? My things? My money? This is all yours. You've gifted it to me. It's all borrowed. It's all yours. What do you need? I love the fact that we don't even know the owner's name in the passage. He gave Jesus a donkey. He at least deserves a, a, a book of the Bible named after him, right? No, we don't even know his name. He doesn't want credit. He doesn't need recognition. He just wants to help. The owner says, if the Lord needs it, he can have it. And then when they bring this donkey to Jesus, there's no saddle. You notice that? So what do they do? Uh, the disciples take off their cloaks and they make a uh, makeshift saddle and they put it on there for Jesus to sit on. And back then, the cloak was your most expensive item. It was your most expensive item. Uh, most people only had about one cloak you know, because it, it was just so expensive. It was heavy. It protected you from the elements back then. You know, they didn't have, you know, not, not everyone rode in a carriage. You know, there was a lot of walking. So if they walked, they would have to stay in an inn. They would have to stay in a friend's night. The cloak was used as a blanket. You'd freeze without it. Imagine that. Your most valuable possession. Someone says, hey, can I borrow that? You know, that item of yours? Thanks, man. I'm just going to sit on it. Is that cool? <laughs> it's like farting on it. So, oh, I'm sorry. My bad. You know? It reminds me of when John the Baptist said, Jesus, I'm not even worthy of untying the sandals on your feet. Could you believe that? Jesus is saying, whatever it is, your most valuable possession. He says, hey, do you mind if I sit on that? My butt needs a cushion. And then you're like, what? He's like, you're not even going to think twice about that in heaven. Relax. <laughs> and friends, this is um, such a beautiful passage. Man, it's just such a beautiful passage. As I was reflecting on it this week, I thought to myself, what would it look like if we lived like Jesus, the cosmic king of the universe? He was, he was real. You know? What would it look like if we believed that the ultimate champion was here. And he was our ultimate joy. And he was our ultimate security. And he's our ultimate rest. What would it look like for you to believe in that? How free would you be? Of all the things that keep you anxious and worried. How inspiring would it be to see your brother and sister to live with that kind of joy? What would it look like to think about and talk about and daydream about and plan and live with and for the king? What would it look like to sacrifice for him? We're growing in this. I love our church. I think we're doing great in this actually. <laughs> but I think there's still a little bit more to learn. Friends, no make uh, make no mistake about it. The king is here. Sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see it. And it's my prayer that our church would respond with truth, emotions, and sacrifice. Let's pray. Gracious God, forgive us, for we are forgetful folk. 
we are proud folk, we are rebellious folk, and, and we are, including the ones speaking, ultimately the ones speaking, we are foolish. We just heard, and I just spent uh, 20 hours this week on this sermon about Jesus being the true king, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate rest, the ultimate security, and I know that every single one of us will struggle with this. So there is nothing else we can do but come to you in prayer. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And so would you send your Holy Spirit into this room, into our hearts, into our lives to live like this. With a life and walk that reflects this truth with emotions that is filled with you fulfilling all the emotional expectations we have and with sacrifice for your glory, for your kingdom. What do you need? Help us to give it so that you can have it. We pray this. In the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.